My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Dan Heath is the co-author, with his brother Chip, of four New York Times bestsellers, Decisive, Switch, Made to Stick, and The Power of Moments. The books have sold over 3 million copies worldwide and been translated into 33 languages. Dan is a senior fellow at Duke University's Case Center, which supports social entrepreneurs. Previously, Dan worked as a researcher and case writer for Harvard Business School. In the late 1990s, Dan co-founded a publishing company called ThinkWell, which produces online college textbooks that feature video lectures from some of the country's top professors. One proud geeky moment for Dan was his victory in the 2005 New Yorker cartoon caption contest, beating out 13,000 other entrants. Dan has an MBA from Harvard Business School and a BA from the University of Texas at Austin. I hope you enjoyed learning from Dan Heath today, because I always do. Dan, it's so great to connect today. In the classes I teach, I always try to pull interesting stories, uh, ideas, activities from books I've read. And without a doubt, I have implemented more ideas and activities from your books than from any others. So it's so great to connect today. Matt, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Great to be here with you. Well, Dan, as you think back on the lessons you've learned and shared, uh, what lesson would you most like to pass on to other people? I've been thinking about this prompt since uh, we got in touch with each other. And and it's hard because I've written or co-written five books that are all full of advice, which is more <laughs> advice than anybody should be dispensing, to be honest. But uh, I, I have whittled it down to one piece of advice that I think is the best advice my brother and I have ever given. I've seen it work in countless different situations, both personal and professional. So, so let, let, let me kick this off. And I'm going to keep you in suspense for just a second. I'm going to start with a quick story. <laughs> there was a young man named Bobby, 15 years old, always in trouble in high school, you know, just constantly acting up, getting sent to the principal for discipline. And, and everybody kind of empathized with Bobby. He had a, just a horrendous home life. He'd been in and out of foster care. And so people could understand why he acted the way that he did. But nonetheless, they couldn't afford to let him ruin the learning environment for everybody. So in and out of trouble. So one day, once again, gets into the principal's office. He's sent to the counselor's office. Turns out it's the day when a brand new counselor named Murphy has just started work. And so this is the first meeting between Bobby and this counselor, Murphy. And so if you just kind of play through in your mind's eye, like these two are meeting, of course, Murphy has heard about Bobby and his reputation, but this is the first time they meet. Maybe they say hello, introduce each other. What do you imagine is the first thing out of the counselor's mouth? Like we, we tend to think in a situation like that, Murphy is going to say, what's going on, Bobby here? What, what's the problem, Bobby? Why, why are you acting this way? Or tell me your side of the story, Bobby. But instead, Murphy starts the conversation by saying, Bobby, tell me about the times at school when you don't get in trouble as much. Now, let's just pause one second on that question, because this is where we're headed. Notice the, the, the jujitsu that's going on, right? We, we assume that when there are problems, we should spend our time focusing on those problems. I mean, this is what we do in, in most change situations that we say, what's the problem? 
and how do we fix it? And I don't mean to suggest that that's a dumb thing to do. It's not. It's a great thing to do to solve problems. But we're so good at that, and it's so instinctive to us that we blind ourselves to another mode of inquiry that is every bit as powerful but rarely asked. And that's the question, what's working? What's working today? And how can we do more of that? And that is a philosophy that my brother Chip and I call finding the bright spots. This is Murphy, the counselor's. This is his approach. He's trained in a discipline called solutions-focused therapy, which is obsessed with bright spots. So back to the story he asked Bobby, you know, when do you not get in trouble at school? And Bobby says, well, I don't get in trouble very much in Mrs. Smith's class. And Murphy says, okay, well, what's different about Mrs. Smith's class? He's probing. He's trying to understand what are the specific circumstances that allow Bobby to succeed. And so there's some back and forth and they talk. And, and eventually Murphy surfaces three tangible, concrete things that Miss Smith does differently. So the first thing is she greets him at the door with a smile every day. And uh, understandably, some of Bobby's other teachers tended to kind of sneak the other way when they saw him coming, right? He's a troublemaker, but not Mrs. Smith. When she could, she would give him easier work to complete. And she always checked to make sure he understood the assignments before they got going. Because if he was unclear, it was often a trigger for bad behavior. So Murphy, like having unearthed these things, these principles, practices that Mrs. Smith had used, goes to Bobby's other teachers and says, hey, I've got three things for you to try. Will you try greeting him at the door? Will you try giving him easier work when you can? Will you try to make sure every time he understands the instructions? And what happens is Bobby goes from getting in trouble in four or five out of six classes every day, that was his before track record, to afterwards getting in trouble in only one or two out of the six every day. So notice, Bobby, still no Eagle Scout, right? I mean, he's still getting in trouble on average every single day at school. But that's a pretty dramatic transformation. I mean, a pretty dramatic improvement in behavior, even though, and notice this, we haven't solved any of the prob the root causes of Bobby's bad behavior. You know, we, we can't fix his home life. But what we could do was improve the situation by paying attention to what was already working despite the circumstances and doing more of that. That's the notion of finding the bright spots. So let me just come up for air there so I don't uh, do a monologue in your whole podcast. You know, really interesting because uh, I recently interviewed um, a man named Joe Folkman. Joe, uh, his company, uh, Zinger Folkman, has distributed maybe not the most 360 degree feedbacks by any one company, but if not the most, they're like second or third. We're mm -hmm. talking millions of 360 degree feedbacks. Wow. And one of the things that he said that I thought was so interesting is you do a 360 degree feedback with these leaders. And so often people just go right to their weaknesses mm. and that's what they work on. And his advice based on the data that they've collected. Well, well, one, he said this, I thought this was interesting. He said, okay, you, you got all these leaders that have these, these weaknesses, right? How many leaders have like, like fatally flawed weaknesses? Think of some of them. And it's like Steve Jobs. Did he have some fatal flaws? Like, yeah, he did. He had some serious flaws. Think of Elon Musk. I mean, at one point, richest person in the world, 
built some of the most successful companies. Some I just finished his biography. Some ser- what people would call some serious fatal flaws. Yet they succeeded in spite of the flaws. And so what uh, Joe Folkman's research has shown is that most leaders, they're actually probably better off just focusing on their strengths. Mm. Yeah, if you have a fatal flaw, maybe you should try to work on it. But the point was like, look how amazingly successful some people are just by really focusing on their strengths. And that just reminded me of this, finding the bright spot is like, look, Bobby's got some problems, but he probably does so many other things really well that just by creating circumstances to help those things come out, we can solve a lot of Bobby's problems. 100%. And and, and I'm here to tell your students and, and someday your kids, this concept can become a kind of superpower for you because again and again and again and again in life, in your personal life, in, in whatever you do for work, you're going to encounter situations where there are mixed signals. There are um, data points that don't agree with each other. You're going to look at employee engagement data, and there's going to be a bunch of employees who are sort of engaged and some that are disengaged and some that are super engaged. And in all these situations, whether you're looking at uh, customer purchases or your own track record of getting to the gym or your own interactions with your significant other, right? There's going to be things that are good, things that are bad, things that are in the middle. And our natural tendency every time is to dwell on what's not working, what's broken, what's negative. If you even look at the English language, like 62% of our emotion words are negative emotions. When people write in journals, they uh, spend far more energy and time dwelling on what's not working than on what is. And I want you, whoever's listening to this, to be the person in the group that says, okay, yeah, Bobby's behavior is pretty bad. Or, you know, yeah, our employee engagement scores have dipped. But hang on a second. Let's flip and look at the other side of the spectrum. Because um, it's almost like we were born with two biceps. And in fact, we were born with two biceps, but uh, we've been going to the gym every single day and like doing curls with the right bicep and just getting jacked, you know, with thousands of reps. That's what I mean by problem solving. And then we have this other bicep that's just as good, just as much potential. That's bright spot analysis. And it's like weak and flaccid and sad, you know, like they have exactly the same potential. You can analyze what is working with just as much discipline, just as much data, just as much rigor as you can analyze what's not working. But you'll find in life again and again, people just don't do it. It's weird. It's really weird. Well, and I think I'm especially prone to this, you know, exercising this one bicep for a couple of reasons. One, in social psychology, so much of what I research and what our field researches is is the problems, the biases, the where do we mess up? Why do we make these mistakes? Plus, I went to law school grounded in skepticism, and you're always looking for, you know, the risks, and, and it's such a risk-averse field. And, and so I really appreciate this advice of looking for the bright spots. And I'm wondering, is there any specific example in your life where you've applied this and seen the benefits, whether in parenting or in your professional life? 100%. I use this all the time. Uh, and I think one of the biggest victories. That, that I've won over the years is I am a, a by nature a terrible procrastinator. 
uh, I mean, in school and college as, as a 20 something young man, I mean, it was a, it was actually a big deal. It was a big detriment. Um, and, uh, probably the two biggest things that helped me fight it, which are not really clonable is, is working with my brother who is, uh, the polar opposite of a procrastinator and and marrying a woman who is also the polar opposite. So so that's one piece of advice is is have a brother and a wife who <laughs> are, are uh, corrective of your worst weaknesses. But but to your question, I also learned a lot just by saying, hey, when I'm at my best, why is it? Why am I at my best? Like, what are the circumstances that allow me to succeed? And so over the years, you know, as I've written these different books, and I have a lot of data points, right? I have days when I when I wasted the whole morning just kind of procrastinating what I knew I needed to do. I have days when I, I had a brilliant work shift and felt really proud of myself, right? I have mixed data. But when I looked at the, the positive data points, they tended to kind of fall within a pattern. You know, most commonly, I was in a coffee shop. I just, whatever reason, I work better in coffee shops. I, I get there early in the morning. I do my best creative work in the morning. And I have kind of an uninterrupted block of time, you know, maybe three plus hours where I, I can't be doing calls. I can't have other commitments. Like for whatever reason, like the way my brain works, I've got to kind of be in the bubble for for hours to get anything done. And if if, if I had a day with five hours that were that was broken up by four tasks, I would be way worse than if I just had a day with three hours unbroken. Uh, and so I learned from that, right? It's just like the Bobby story, but applied to my own life. Like, when am I at my best? How can I reproduce those circumstances? But at the other end of the spectrum, I mean, I got it. We talked about a couple of personal examples, but I've seen, you know, public companies use this analysis on things as big as customer retention, you know, the the single most important sign of health in the life of a subscription company and run this game plan and say, hey, let's look at why certain customers are staying, you know, even in times when maybe the trend is is against you and what can we learn from that? Uh, and, and one company in particular, I mean, literally added an increment of about nine digits of revenue just by studying their own best work, wow. right? I mean, it was just like low-hanging fruit there all along, and it just took someone to come along and look and investigate. What's really interesting to me about this finding the bright spots is, as you have just illustrated, it can work when we're dealing with others, but it can also work with ourselves. And mm -hmm. I uh, I just kind of went through this exercise, so this this is so timely for me. I, I've I've put on about 20 pounds in the last six months. And so either I have you, cancer. You look so you look so thin, man. How, well, like, where are the 20 pounds? So, so nice of you. Um, but you know, it's like, okay, so either I've I've got some like sort of illness that is causing me to put on weight, or and I'm just getting older. I think that's it. But I was thinking, like, when was I at my best? And it was in, you know, more recently, and it was right before COVID, and I was exercising every morning. And I've started exercising at night lately. Uh, and so I was thinking like, I need to go back to the coffee shop, right? Like I need, that's where I do my work. That's where I was my best. So just literally yesterday, I thought, okay, I'm going to restructure my exercise. I'm going to start going in the mornings. And so I went yesterday morning. I felt great. Um, and I, I did, I'm going this afternoon. So I'm already kind of driving the ball, but 
you've motivated me, inspired me. I'm going to experiment with this and really try to focus on the bright spot and and see what happens. But I I suspect that I'm going to get improved results. Yeah, and I I also want to tell the people listening, like uh, I mean, this is there. There's no advice that's a panacea. You know, there there are quibbles and and concerns with this. Like I'll give you one one example is um, let's say you were working on. Uh, mal- the problem of malnourished children in developing countries. You know, you desperately wanted to find a way to raise them healthier. Um, you know, would your bright spots be well? Uh, you know, according to WHO statistics, the the healthiest kids in the world are in Sweden. Let's go there and study them, and and learn. You know, what's going on there in hopes of exporting their. No, that right. that's not going to work, right? Uh, that for bright spots to work, they have to be kind of um, native or, or particular to the environment you're studying. But that's also an enormous strength, right? Because it means bright spots are relative, not absolute. So, you know, my stories of overcoming procrastination, on the whole, I was still a terrible procrastinator. I mean, I was probably still a D minus relative to my peer group. But I mean, for me, a D minus is better than an F. You know, there, there's room for improvement. So if, if you're working on malnutrition, what you want to do is go to the developing countries. So, you know, find find a, a contextual group that makes sense and study the bright spots within those confines. And, and you're likely to find something um, that, number one, is explanatory of why some kids are healthier than others. And number two, you, whatever you discover will you know by definition be relevant to that group yeah. it won't just be like oh well you know have rich swedish parents that's that's not a <laughs> a, a scalable solution well i've been looking forward to this interview for a long time uh for a number of reasons but one of those was because your books have so much simple practical relevant advice like i said i, I use so many of your techniques and ideas in my classes and so I was curious of all those things that Dan and Chip say in their books, like, what is Dan going to possibly say? And I will say, I thought it was interesting how you started. Um, you created a knowledge gap. So th- this is something I try to do in my classes where you, you try to draw people's attention to something they don't know before you fill in the gap. And so, you know, you created some suspense, pointed out, reminded us that we didn't know what lesson you were going to share. And then, of course, you uh, started with a story which is one of the techniques that you talk about in Made to Stick and, and how to capture attention. And so cool to see you applying uh, some of the things that you talk about. And I just love this lesson of finding the bright spot. So uh, Dan, any any final words as, as we wrap up here? No final words, just uh, just a, a kind of generic provocation to to use that other bicep. And, and I'm telling you, you're not going to believe how often you can use this tool and what a powerful difference it makes. Like this, this can be your superpower. Well, fantastic, especially for a show dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. So thanks so much for sharing these lessons today, Dan. And I look forward to trying to apply this lesson of finding the bright spot in my own life. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. I could have listened to Dan for days. What a great lesson about bright spots. We're prone to focus on weakness and shortcomings. Almost two-thirds of emotion words are negative. When we write in journals, we tend to focus on what's not working. But as Dan so convincingly described, focusing on our own bright spots and the bright spots of others can be a superpower. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously.
Nate Mickle here with a couple requests. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star review on your podcast player. Lastly, if you're like me and want to remember all of the lessons shared in previous episodes, visit the list of lessons page on my website, natemickle.com, to see all of the lessons that each previous guest has shared. Thanks for your support.